Hello and welcome again to Decoding the Gurus. It is the podcast where two academics, that is me, Matt Brown, and Christopher Kavanagh, um, listen to content from the greatest minds the online world has to offer. I'm a psychologist and we specialize in understanding the mysteries of the human brain. Chris is an anthropologist and I'm not quite sure what anthropologists do, but I think they pursue primates through jungles or something. Um, and we are going to do what we usually do, which is get to the bottom of the interesting stuff that comes across uh, our feed in this interconnected online world culture. Are you ready to go, Chris? I am. I'm just back from my latest expedition in the world famous rainforests of Japan, trekking after the uh, noted gorilla populations <laughs> that exist here. What? So I'm, I'm back. I'm back from that and and ready to ready to go. <laughs> yeah. So I think your research method is you basically interfere with them and bother them as much as possible until they react and do something interesting. That's kind of how. It yeah, works, it's it? anthropology because I go and live with them for several years. I'm basically <laughs> at one with the Japanese gorilla population. Now. They've accepted me into their troop. That's. I I don't want to get into it, Matt, because it's it's kind of it's a spiritual experience for me as much as a research topic. <laughs> okay, so we are at episode three, which I think is a pretty important milestone for us, eh, Chris? That's right. The 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 death knell for many fledgling podcast the the, the Bermuda <laughs> Triangle of episode three. Yeah, yeah. Well, we are flying through it with sailing colors. <laughs> the reason people listen to us, Matt, is for that kind of you know nice analogy and and beautiful turn of phrase. I think. <laughs> yeah, you can tell I've studied for years in higher education. Um, so the first thing we have to do today is um, issue a correction. Um, oh, yes, I, I know. I know this is going to disappoint many of our listeners, but we did get something. Mm, not quite right in that last episode on James Lindsay. That's that's right, and it's we were hoisted by our own petard because after lambasting James for his failure to research Jurassic Park canon uh, in suitable depth, we spent a significant amount of time discussing uh, monkey science fiction virus outbreak movies and what. And speculating on what was being referenced. And we, we managed to cover a large amount of those movies. But the one that we didn't mention was Outbreak, which is the movie yeah. featuring Dustin Hoffman. So look at that. Mm-hmm. We're, mm-hmm. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. We, <laughs> we deserve that feedback. Yeah, yeah, we did. Um, okay, take this. This is our Mia Culpa. We um, humbly... Uh, apologize and retract that. Yeah, um, no, I'm going to okay. just say, Matt, that the Jurassic Park one is still worse because <laughs> it's, it's, it's a much more important movie than Outbreak. But uh, yeah, but yeah look, I, think, I think the broader I think the broader point still stands, Chris. It does. It does. It it, it persists on unrelented. <laughs> and uh, so the the other uh, feedback that we got was we had to in detail kind of tweet threads breaking down the episode and giving some critical feedback um by skeptic review which is gretchen and uh psych lockwood which is patrick lockwood both uh people we follow on twitter and interact with um and and they had various feedback but the 
and and it was very nice to see i would say but the one of the criticisms they raised which it would be interesting to hear um was that basically uh our view that the james lindsay is overreacting to the critical theory and social justice threat that you know our view that it it isn't causing dramatic societal changes or uh, that that really puts us in the you know academics with our head in the sand uh, camp the the kind of people who historically when when the you know Nazis were gaining in power were saying no oh, don't worry about it look at the, you know they're just a they're just a radical fringe that nobody's paying attention to so uh, so what do you think Matt do you think that's a fair criticism or would you like to defend your mm. take? Uh, look, I look. I think it is a fair criticism. Uh, I'm trying to figure out whether I agree or not. It's really, it's really hard to say because I think this is actually a bigger point, which is it's really hard to tell the relative magnitude or scale of a particular problem, isn't it? Because you, you know, the 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 news and the Twitter feeds and everything like that delivers this this microcosm and puts things under a microscope and it could well be symptomatic of a broader thing or it could just be a flash in the pan and you know that's that's true on on whichever um side of politics you kind of lie um the um you know i can think of many um sort of um left-wing kind of scares or or paranoias i suppose which which it's kind of is it just a is it just a kind of a, a dramatic news event or is it symptomatic of of something much much bigger so i honestly don't know i haven't figured that one out have you uh yeah i've got it i've got it nailed down <laughs> i similarly you know the i i think that where i fall on this is that I'm not in the camp that says this is only a thing like the kind of critical justice or woke stuff is only a thing that applies on like specific campuses and has no impact on the real world. Like I, I don't think that extreme is true because there, there are cultural impacts and there are, you know, even it just the mere rhetoric is clearly relevant in modern politics. But on the other hand, the part that I don't buy into is the kind of presentation by James and others that we are on the cusp of a woke totalitarian regime, right? Because the, the, the examples that they use are, you know, that we have in the past have seen left-wing totalitarian regimes, which we have, but by and large, those have been communist regimes, not, woke regimes and the you know this kind of image of uh i i think that genuinely people are imagining you know re-education camps where you and i and and others will be like lined up and be made to recite d'angelo until or (laughs) like or tattoo anti-racist our forehead and like that seems to me you know a kind of far-fetched thing which might be a result of having read too many uh, young adult fiction novels about dystopian futures. <laughs> that's that's a cynical sarcasm uh, for quotient for this yeah. episode um, going up. So yeah. yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think I said last, um, last week that, um, you know, one thing about the, 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 the more woke culture is, um, it's just how nicely it synchronizes with corporate culture. You know, it's, um, you know, I don't, it's too big a topic to get into, but it doesn't strike me as revolutionary. Rather, it seems like very much a, a middle-class cultural kind of thing, which is very comfortable with pretty much maintaining. This is the sort of socialistic side of me coming out, but it is very comfortable with maintaining the the class system, Chris. You are the revolutionary <laughs> that we should be worried about. Matt. This, is the, this is the third episode twist. Matt comes out with the societal revolutionary. <laughs> well, I am unironically in favor of um, um, fu- fully automated luxury gay communism. <laughs> I'm putting my flag in the sand. <laughs> oh, God. Well, we'll have to have an intervention at some point after this episode, but uh, I'll, I'll accept that. And and as I've invoked this episode, uh, Ma, maybe it would be interesting to mention who we're dealing with this week and uh, what our new new topic is. Yes, I'm very glad to do that. Okay, so today, today, um, we are going to be talking about the big one, the big kahuna, the man, Jordan B. Peterson. It, it was just a matter of time before we got into JBP. I think we wanted to save him until we had a little bit of practice, until we were warmed up properly. Um, so it's kind of exciting. It's a big, it's like a landmark moment. It's a milestone, I think, in many ways. <laughs> yeah, I I think he's probably the least controversial person that we've dealt with to describe as a guru. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's yeah he he set out to be a guru. Let's face it, and you know maybe he is. We'll find out, won't we? So, um, do you want to give a very brief summary of JBP for the two or three people who listen who don't know everything about him? Yes, yes, I I want nothing more. So, um. Jordan B. Peterson is a clinical psychologist, maybe personality psychologist as well, who until recently was based at Toronto University and basically had a career publishing away as a clinical psychologist with fairly decent, I think, in fact, very decent citations and maybe sort of influential in his field. He came to fame to the public and to myself more recently, when he was involved with publicly opposing uh, the introduction of a law in Canada that he presented as involving compelled speech about respecting people's pronouns, and this obviously mainly associated with trans rights or trans people requesting different pronouns. And he didn't actually object, or he clarified at various occasions that he didn't object to using an individual's preferred pronouns interpersonally or in his classes. But he did object to the government having a law which he interpreted as mandating that you respect someone's pronouns or face legal consequences. And from that, he was recorded debating some students at the campus, and that went viral. And prior to that event, he had been recording his lectures and putting them online. So had, a, I think, a not huge YouTube following. But in the wake of his growth with this viral video, people became aware of his online lectures and those became popular. And then he gave some talks and eventually published a self-help book called 12 Rules for Life, 
and and his fame continued to grow until he became a regular fixture on social and political topics, issuing his opinion and many think pieces written about him and his potential connection to the alt-right or uh, extreme right-wing communities online and his objection to that connection being presented. So yeah, he became a controversial figure and uh, issued a lot of content online in the form of lectures and interview series. It's interesting, isn't it, how so many of these figures kind of make their path towards fame through one of these controversies that build up a storm, you know, whether it's Brett Weinstein or JBP or even Donald Trump. It's by saying controversial things, sort of sparking a bit of a the, the sort of culture war backlash that, that really, in many ways, propels them to popularity, hey? Yeah, and actually, I've... I've heard Brett Weinstein discuss in an interview that admission to the intellectual dark web, one characteristic or requirement might be to have undergone a public test of your commitment to free speech. So in essence, an initiation ritual where your your ideals are tested in public and you stand up and reveal your true character. And as a cognitive anthropologist who, alongside chasing uh, apes through the jungles, specializes in ritual psychology. And, and I've done some research on initiation rituals. It, it definitely seems to fit the build to me that there is this group identification or, or social bonding with people perceived to have undergone a public ordeal that they that they then link to their commitment to free speech. So it, it becomes like attached to a secret value and an identity, be it the intellectual dark web or, you know, some other group. So it's it's very interesting for me from that uh, perspective of it it being a kind of initiation ritual that someone needs to undergo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, very. So, so today we're going to look at at a uh, clip, an interview. Um, we've posted it on Twitter already, so if you haven't watched it by now, uh, that's that's your problem. You really should have. Bad, bad. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's that's your band. <laughs> the audience. <laughs> um, okay, so so this is uh, an interview um, with um, about religion, Chris, I think. Yeah, so content that we're looking at today is an interview he did on a YouTube channel called Transliminal, where it's actually another cognitive anthropologist from my neck of the woods. So he's probably also just back from his field trips with primates, interviewing Jordan Peterson in an extended two and a half hour interview, mainly about his views relating to philosophy and religion and this kind of topics, not so much the culture war stuff, though that comes up at the end. And we kind of canvassed people online to ask for content to look at. And this was recommended by a couple of people as one of his more substantial and better pieces. So lots of his material is, you know, the well-known stuff is confrontational interviews or his lecture series but this this is a kind of standalone episode and I, I think it's actually a very good one for illustrating lots of the broader themes that are in 
his work or the way he presents himself. Uh, so it's a good chunk of material for us to look at in terms of uh yeah as a guru yeah yeah and very challenging too i mean we'll get into this but um yeah it's it, it's it is two hours long although we can't criticize him for length because <laughs> we've been known to create long content um but it is it is challenging for me to understand precisely what he's arguing for and what he what he actually means. Although you know, and so I find it very interesting. Like if you look through the YouTube comments, or you look at um, you know, I I'm mutuals with many people who at, at like and admire Jordan Peterson, and they they haven't really cited this issue of finding him difficult to understand. They they seem. They, they often say he's um, insightful and stimulating and all that stuff. So I don't know. I, I do get, even from people that like him, they tend to acknowledge that he has a, a waffly way of talking. They they just, they appreciate that about him. So like I, I definitely have heard, even from people that are fans, that they find him at times impenetrable. <laughs> but, that, but that feels like a feature. Yeah, yeah. I think that's taken as evidence of what a high level he's operating on um so it does have that kind of guru-esque quality but we we, we um we oh should... wait yeah i i should also have mentioned that the, like this is so there's two interviews on transliminal media and this is the second one from 2017 so this is kind of at the peak of uh, peterson's rise um and and the interviewer Jordan Levine, the cognitive anthropologist guy, it's actually quite interesting because he's very good in his questions at rephrasing things very coherently and concretely and asking quite specific questions. But he but does so in a, in a you know friendly way. So it's it's an interesting interview in that respect, just like from you know good interview technique. Yeah, although Jordan is equally good at refusing to be pinned down. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, that's the contrast. That's what makes it like such an interesting contrast because there's these very specific questions and then the answer is never specific or if it is, it 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 comes after like 10 minutes of tangential discussion. Mm. So, so the nominal topic is ideology, logos and belief. Yeah. Um I I had to google I had just should say also I had to google a lot of terms that were used in this. It probably would make a lot more sense for a, a theologian or theology scholar I suppose for whom this stuff might feel more natural. Do you, you you're an anthropologist so when you're not bothering primates do you, and you even study religion. So like did do 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 you think this made more sense to you than to me? I well, that's impossible for me to answer. But, like, like, but, <laughs> but I I possibly so because I my background is like my my personal background is that I was raised a Catholic in a Catholic family in Ireland, and so the Christian components of it are not alien, and then. I also had an interest in mysticism in like my kind of teens up to my early twenties, and and still do like find that stuff kind of interesting. So I know a bit about Christian mysticism and the Sufism and various other traditions. So that that gave me you know like a foundation. But it's this is not to say that like there weren't times where I was like, what the hell are we talking about? Like you know, <laughs> it, it's just that I think that foundation helped. 
Yeah, yeah, good, good. So yeah, let's let's get into the clips, shall we? And we'll take that as a bit of a like. It's, this is a difficult ball of string to unravel because just because JBP is who he is. So I I tried to make some kind of um, structure or plan to cover this stuff and kind of failed. But I think I think if we work through some of the clips, then we can take those as jumping off points to um, to, to to make some comments. Yeah, and so one of the issues is that like in in trying to extract clips from this, it's very hard to cut out a segment because he keeps linking things in or like wandering down tangents to his tangents that would require like splicing things together. So some of these clips might be long, but um, I'm just sharing with my, you my frustration. Where I was like, okay, I'll take a clip of this. Wait, wait, stop talking. Stop like going on about, you know, side tangents, like just... Can you can you say that again concisely? <laughs> um, but that that rarely happens. So yeah, yeah. Look, I I think a couple of longer clips is really helpful for listeners because in terms of to illustrate how he talks and and how he argues, uh, because it's all kind of the same, like it's the same style throughout. So I think a couple of um, a couple of longer clips we can afford the time, which will be really helpful to illustrate how it actually works. Yeah, it's good. No one complains about the length of podcasts. Um, so... No, they they, <laughs> they love it. They love it. They fall asleep to it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so with all that preamble, let me play the first clip, which probably will illustrate some of these long, you know, winding connections. So here we go. And I, I've been thinking about why that was, because many people have decried political correctness, but they did it in generic ways, you know, and so here, here's a strange sequence of thoughts. So there's this idea in Christianity that the word, which is the, the capacity that's associated with consciousness, I would say, is the, is the mechanism by which chaotic potential is transformed into habitable order, and also the mechanism by which order that has become too rigid is dissolved and reconstituted, right? That's the basic element of the hero myth. And, and the, the word, the logos, is a universally distributed eternal phenomena. But in the Christian context, it's also been given a localization. So it's as if this universal principle, well, that's the word made flesh, it's as if the universal principle <clears throat> was also instantiated in the local. And there's a deep idea there, which is that the universal lacks something, and what it lacks is specificity. So in order to make the universal even more universal, you make it specific. So how, how was that? Started. <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of thing I struggle with, Chris. <laughs> um, okay, so... Yeah, I, I, look, I, I think before even breaking down that, you know, what he's actually trying to say, I would just say that's characteristic of his way of speaking and presenting ideas that, you know, one... One thought leads to the next, and before you know it, he's moved from why he remained popular when there's many people decrying political correctness to discussing logos and the instantiation of logos in a like embodied Christ figure and the uniqueness of Christianity. It does sort of follow a logical stream, but it's it really is connecting a lot of disparate things together 
into yeah. like a fourth stream. Yeah, yeah. It's um, yeah. So the reason I uh, have trouble with it is that it is, as you say, very associative. Yeah, a whole bunch of ideas are linked together in this network of associations for for one to kind of get the feeling of what is meant. So yeah, that's. I mean, you know, that's so that's not that's not rigorous, but I guess there's. I guess it's legitimate in that some, you know, it's almost like poetry. I'm not sure how to describe it. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it is kind of theological reflection, a lot of it. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But it's kind of surprising that he became so popular on the basis of this. Because I can imagine some people saying, you know, in a different era, I got a 15 cassette thing on how to pray properly by some Christian theologian. That not being regarded as a cool edgy thing but listening to jordan peterson discuss the bible across like a 15 series uh online lecture is is regarded as something that that is not only interesting and worthwhile but it's kind of like an edgy yeah. thing to do yeah kind yeah, of which, new and hip. it's just surprising yeah yeah it is it is because i mean like i recognize and if i had to do a bit of research but i recognize some of the substance behind this stuff for instance this instantiation of the universal in the specific i i figured out is an element in christian theology it's one of their ways of thinking about the divinity and of christ and so on he's both the specific um human being but also representing these universal things and god and all that so it's not like he's just making this stuff up but like that's a topic that wouldn't seem to be either controversial or attractive to most modern people. Yeah, and I think it's the linking of these grand grand narratives and large philosophical topics to very specific culture war issues, right? That that might be the unique component. So there's a there's a clip here of him talking about his origin story where he emerged from his opposition to this Bill C-16 in in Canada. And I think this gives a good example of like how he links issues into broader meta-narratives. I believe that that's an unwarranted intrusion of a certain kind of ideolo ideology. It's postmodern ideology fundamentally with, with its roots in, in a kind of a surround of, of Marxist identity politics. And I thought it, think that it was completely inappropriate for that to be transformed into legislation. Mm. So he he argues that his opposition to that bill is a very incidental fact to his bigger philosophical opposition to postmodernism and neo-Marxists who are destroying everything. And he he actually makes this point very clearly when he argues that he he even sees the transgender people which were in some sense seen as the you know the target for that bill because it was about you know using appropriate pronouns for people that his opposition to the bill is actually in defense of them from these philosophies that they are being sacrificed to. And again, Matt, I'll, I'll play a clip and then see what you think about that. I do not believe that legislation like Bill C-16 is in the least in the interest of people who, these people who are marginalized. Quite the contrary. I believe they're the, they're sacrificial victims to the onslaught of a continuing postmodern neo-Marxist ideology. 
Yes, so he does characterize that this specific issue, which obviously was became a big thing and played a big role in him developing um, a much larger profile, he characterizes it as an instantiation. This is his theme of you know instantiating things in the specific uh, of what he sees as this sort of great battle between between. Um, truth and order and the word and, <laughs> and habitable orders versus um, you know chaotic potentials and so on so I can hear from the tone of your voice Matt that you were really into this <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so we'll talk about this later but what comes through is his worldview which it's it's amazingly anti-materialist in, in that he really believes very strongly in in that there's underlying there is a there is a more true reality like a kind of spiritual he calls it theological but he uses his own special definition of theological to mean i'm not sure what but um you know he 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 sees this this hidden reality underneath the material and and he sees that the 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 real stuff is happening there and stuff like politics or you know economics or even society and so on uh is is just kind of the ephemera at the top so it is interesting. He's he's a he's a spiritualist, you know. So he's very much. Um, it's a very different worldview from yours or mine. Yeah, this this sort of surprised me. The way I came across Jordan Peterson was I I listened to him on the Sam Harris show and was like I was aware, you know, of him, the protests and the controversy surrounding him. Then I heard him interviewed by Sam Harris, and they had like a two hour endless debate about like truth right and that peterson was arguing for what many would might consider the kind of postmodern view that you know truth is not about something corresponding to fact or reality it's it's more about meaning and like I, I, it it's a long episode you can go listen to no, it if you want no, but I won't. um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah but after that i then didn't pay that much con- attention to his content, you know, just in clips and the interviews and whatnot with him. Um, and then I got uh, the 12 rules for life long after it had exited the cultural moment and like people weren't paying attention. So I read it a year or two after that. And I was kind of amazed at how much theological Christian focused content there was in it. There was, there was psychology, there was like self-help stuff. And it was some some culture war thing, but like the much more dominating theme for me was like religious themes, connecting things to the Bible. And it, it surprised me that people didn't focus more on this aspect of him, at least that I saw. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it is interesting that both his, like, that's not the, that's not the feature that is emphasized by either his fans or his detractors, because his fans would sort of characterize him as a, as a rigorous facts don't care about your feelings kind of guy. And his detractors characterize some of his fans, Mm -hmm. some of his fans, because I just think, I think he has a wing that like him because of this, like the, the, the side that lean towards spirituality and maybe specifically Christian spirituality and and that if they've spent a lot of time with his material, it's impossible that they've not noticed this. So maybe the the people that you're talking about, I'm not sure, but there might be, you know, different wings of his fandom. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, he is a well, he is there in the IDW and so on, you know. So he's kind of got the that that sort yes. of associations. But like, I I do agree with you though that I think one way to understand what JBP is about is part of a like a much bigger long term trend, which is for religiosity. I guess in the face of you know science, kind of. Um, eating away at it and undercutting it um, over the last hundred years or, or more has progressively become more and more abstract, and you know, to sort of and, and more philosophical and 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 spiritual in a very vague, abstract kind of way. So it's much unless you're an evangelical Christian in the in the American Midwest, then you know, and if if you are religious, you probably you you probably think about your religion much less in terms of concrete things about you know a bearded guy in the sky and about and about um like the sort of literal truth of things that happened in the bible but much more in terms of how jbp uh describes it which is like psychologizing it and and making it more ineffable and um you know very vague but also much more congruent with with uh, a sort of a scientific view of the world, because it's now it's now operating in a completely different domain. Um, am I making any kind of sense, <laughs> Chris? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I I'm just thinking that my image of popular religion, though, is that what you're describing does account for a lot of modern religious sentiment, particularly amongst people who are not connected to traditional religious communities. Uh, or or arrived at religion later at life, but I I guess my pause is that I think there's a substantial portion, uh, especially in America and North America, of religious people for whom their beliefs are fairly literal and biblically based, or 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 fundamentalistly based at least that. There is a heaven, there are angels interacting in the world, and there's a literal devil and a hell, like not abstract uh, philosophical versions of those, much more physical reality stuff. And and that, that's where lots of the opposition for abortion and, and things come from, that community or that wing of the religious community. Mm. Oh look! Oh look! They absolutely, certainly, still exist and and are, are a strong force. I, I guess my point is is that a, characters like JBP appeal to both kinds. Like as you know, as we see in this interview, he has it both ways. He gets asked directly about um, the literal truth of some Christian things, and uh, yeah, he he has it both ways, in which it's con- kind of congruent with whichever flavor of religion you prefer. Yeah, I have a clip that speaks nicely to this and also his issue with definitions. Um, so let's, let's start with this one. Well, I would say the same problems with the question formulation obtain. What do you mean by divine? And also, what do you mean by Christ? These are very, very difficult questions. So that was in response to your question, asking him, you know, does he literally believe in the divinity of Christ, for example? And the interview actually introduced that the evangelical people might like Jordan Peterson stuff, but be curious, does he literally believe it? And so his answer is, you know, well, first it 
the, it depends how you define divine and how you define Christ. <laughs> and and this is a common thing is retreating to it's all about definitions. And the thing that strikes me about that is like on the one hand, okay, you you want to get your definitions clear for what you're talking about, especially if it's a complex topic. But redefining well-known terms constantly and and defining them in a vague way is supposed to be something that critical theorists and postmodern people do. And it's supposed mm. to be bad, right? That's like <laughs> they redefine common words in the way that suits their purpose, or they argue that the, there is no agreed upon meanings, that they, they are happy using things in metaphorical yeah. ways. So it, yeah, it feels like there's a, at least one group of people that shouldn't be cheering on this way to respond to direct questions. No, no, exactly, and it and it dovetails with that other with that other theme of sort of having it both ways, where, you know, Jesus Christ is both a literal figure, um, who who did do miracles and all this stuff, but also he's like a Jungian hero, archetype, and he's yeah. a, and he's an archetype, and he's not just a hero; he's a meta hero. He's a meta hero, yeah, exactly. And so you just left kind of, <laughs> um, oh, we. Matt, there's a perfect clip that relates to this. This is in res response to the topic of hell coming up. Right. People who believe in hell are terrified of hell about for, its, for themselves. And in, in my estimation, they should be because I also believe in hell. Although what that means, again, is, you know, subject to interpretation. Lots of people live in hell and lots of people yeah. create it. <laughs> so, I, I just, it's so beautiful because he starts in like... He's he's actually making the point I made about, you know, there are people who have literal beliefs in hell. It's a literal place. And then his response is to say, and I believe in hell. But then he realizes he's perhaps endorsed like the that sounds like he's endorsing the literal one. So he immediately goes, well, you know, depends what you mean by <laughs> hell. <laughs> and then he starts talking about hell's other people, right? Or hell is, you know, it's so it's like, but then didn't you just... You don't, you believe in hell in the metaphorical sense, right? But not as a physical location. And I don't think he would answer that I, or, you know, he can't answer those things directly. Yeah, no, I don't think he can. Um, so, yeah, he, he's a psychologist and he's, he's obviously religious as well, although it's very unclear what kind of religion he, he has. Um, but Except that it's Christian. It is definitely Christian. Yeah, that he's very clear about that. Um so yeah, no. It's, so the interesting dynamic is him sort of transforming and melding psychological, or you know, it's not contemporary psychology. It's the more psych the psychology that's associated with clinical stuff and and quite um, old fashioned stuff like Freud and Jung. But yeah, sort of melding this sort of psychological definitions of things, like like people creating their own hell, and with a with a religious conception of hell and. Yeah, I'm not, it's just so nebulous. I'm not really quite. I, I can't agree nor disagree with it because I'm not. I'm not sure what's being said. Yeah, and this doesn't only apply like this tendency to muddy the water and redefine things in unclear ways. Does not just apply to the the religious content because maybe in that sense you could be like, well, he's he's talking about concepts which are themselves vague and theological, so that you have to give some leeway to to do that, but. But let me let me just play a clip of him talking about dominance hierarchies and how they, even though that's a topic that he talks about a lot, they aren't dominance hierarchies. 
I use dominance hierarchy because that's a shorthand. People understand what that means. It's not clear that hierarchies are, in fact, dominance hierarchies. <laughs> so, I, I mean, so he goes on to justify this because he's basically saying, you know, it, they don't necessarily have to involve dominance. But I just, it just, <laughs> it means that, you know, even words that he invokes fairly consistently and which have well-known definitions that you can't trust them because he might be using it just opportunistically. I say dominance hierarchies, but I don't actually mean dominance hierarchies. So it's it, it's it's impressive on the, on the one hand. Yeah, yeah, it is impressive. And it's difficult to um, comment on except to look at the rhetorical maneuvers he's undertaking. Yeah, so I, I guess the point I want to make here and it, it's something which actually applies across some of the other figures that we've looked at less so uh james Lindsay, more so eric and brett weinstein that this use of strategic ambiguity so that you can save something but you can always retreat from it if you're pressed or if somebody tries to pin you down by endorsing metaphorical and literal and alternative definitions that you can make quite provocative statements, but then you can always say, well, yeah, but I wasn't talking about it in the way that you interpret. Um, whereas James Lindsay-style cultural commentators or gurus are not doing that so much. What he thinks is relatively clear, right? You know, he specifies out what he thinks about critical theory. So I, I think this use of strategic ambiguity is something that you see across a whole range of gurus, and it's really mm. common in new age type gurus, which aren't something that we've you know discussed or are focusing on. But but the parallels are clear. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. It's like I guess it's like the uh, Morton Bailey technique on steroids because it, as as you say, it is really really useful because it allows you to make quite striking and seemingly very forceful comments when people are implicitly reading the quite strong uh, interpretation of the words you use. But then if there are internal consistencies that people point out or there's pushback or it becomes difficult to defend, you roll back to the uh, very vague and nebulous definition of the thing. And, and then you can switch back, obviously, <laughs> to, to the powerful one whenever you like. So it's this back and forth which... Um, you know, JVP isn't the only one who does it. It's, ob it. it's obviously very common, but he is very, he does do it a lot. Yeah, and there were there were some striking examples in this. There was even an uh, instance where Jordan Levine, the interviewer, essentially, I, I felt like he was giving him uh, like, what's that, soft pitch or what do you call that expression when somebody uh, throws you an easy uh, question? Uh, soft, softball, softball, Chris. Softball, softball, yeah, soft pitch. <laughs> my, my baseball expertise is shining through there um so a softball question because he he asked him at one point about magic and he basically said like because jordan peterson had talked about how when somebody comes to embody logos in in its fullest form that they can do things which are magical and then the interviewer is like well wait when you say magic do you mean you know, magic that it looks to us hard to explain and feats which which seem incredible psychologically or um, or do you mean pulling rabbits out of a hat? And that felt to me like, okay, he's going to endorse the first one and say, you know, obviously I don't mean that. But that's not what he said. So let me just play his response. 
And when you say magical, you mean magical for all intents and purposes in terms of our perception as relatively naive human consciousness or, or magical in like, you know, rabbits out of hats? Well, certainly the former. And God only knows about the latter. So, you know, that takes us afield into strange areas, um, you, like Jung's, Jung, Jung's observations of synchronous events, for example. Yes. We don't understand the world. Like, I do think the world is, is more like a musical masterpiece than it is like anything else. And things are oddly connected. So he does, like, he means, yes, he means psychological magic or metaphorical magic, but literal magic, let's not rule that out. Because the Jungian archetypes of our Yeah, that, you know? and that goes to his worldview, which I got a better understanding of after listening to this, which, as I said before, is in believing uh, sort of an, an underlying, he, he calls it theological, but he kind of means spiritual and matters of anything to do with morality and good versus evil and so on. He 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 believes in that that spiritual world underlying reality and influencing it in important ways, and I think that's that's the one thing that I um, we can say definitively about JBP's point of view after listening to this. Yeah, there, there's some segments where he starts to explain why rationalists and and Sam Harris and Dawkins in particular are wrong. And that their their belief, or the fact that they use evolutionary theory, <laughs> and that evolutionary theory involves forces of selection, means that they cannot be materialists and be That's consistent. Right. And his his argument there was that selection, yeah, the action of selection is not a material thing. Did I remember that right? <laughs> Yeah, hold on. Let's let the man say it in his own word. The processes that make up social interactions among social animals can't be reduced to their material substrate, but they're real. And they're so real, they select. So they're real. And this is the problem I have with the people who are simultaneously reductionistic materialists and evolutionary biologists. It's like, sorry guys, you don't get to be both. So, yeah. So, yeah, I... Like, I think it's worth spending some time on this argument that he presents because he presents it forcefully, as you can see there, but I find it really silly, <laughs> like fundam fundamentally <laughs> silly, because if I'm trying to summarize it, essentially he's saying that selection is such a fundamental process in the world. And maybe he's even talking about, you know, evolutionary processes as they apply to the formation of planets or something like that, right? That, no, I think he's talking, um, he's talking about biological evolution. He's talking about... Well, okay. Okay. I was I was going to let him <laughs> like, no. give him, but he, yes, he is focusing on biological evolution on the planet Earth. So, yes, okay. But, but even taking that, you can abstract evolutionary processes out into mathematical formulas, for example, and there's... There's no reason that you couldn't apply them in some respect to like different avenues. Dawkins has talked about this as as well, right? Uh, I'm talking about processes of selection, not the specific process of evolution uh, amongst biological things. So even if you accept that, the part which doesn't make sense is he's very upset about people acknowledging that and then trying to tie that to the material world. But... As far as I'm aware, Matt, the only place that we've ever seen selective processes in action 
is the material world and and reality, right? Like we don't we don't have any evidence for selective processes in the spiritual metaphysical yeah, realm. Yeah, no, it is it is a very silly argument. You don't have to be a specialist evolutionary biologist to know that evolution is entirely based on the material. And you know, the fact that some selective processes in social animals like people may well involve things like communication and and social relationships and so on. In in Jordan's mind, that because those things are in his mind derived from theology, uh, this the spiritual realm, then you can't understand evolution without appreciating its basis in theology. Which, yeah, I I, I thought his objection. Although this is probably illustrating the point that you know you can interpret some abstract painting in so many different ways, and that's that's a lot of what he says but i thought his issue was more that the interactions between animals or these like broader processes that they fall into they they don't relate to an individual's behavior like so they they can refer to species levels effects or they can refer to processes that are only evident over generations and that that means looking at the like biophysical level is is reducing things to where you can't observe those patterns. Oh, right. um, yeah. Well, he might have been saying that. Who knows? I mean, but 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 obviously, your point is is that emergent phenomena, like and selection, yeah, and species evolution is like an emergent phenomena of just you know lots of little interacting, um, simple. Yeah, but it emer- my point is it emerges in the physical world. <laughs> yes, that's what I was going to yeah. say. I mean, that is obviously true. So. Yeah, you can, you know, even the books where we write down our ideas are on paper. So, like, there's there's this part where he nods to this argument. And it, it's, it's quite interesting because he's basically saying, well, people will say, you know, everything is tied to the material world. And he's pointing out that's a bad argument. So let me play him rebutting us. Now, you can say, well, it's associated with material phenomena. It's like, well, yes. I would like to point out that that is hardly a brilliant observation. Everything is associated with the material world because here we are in this world. Right. So this this is like a tactic where you acknowledge a criticism, but you don't actually explain why it's wrong, right? And And the other part that got me about this was he almost has insight. You know, he's talking about like linking things to the material world. But when I heard him say that, it was like, it applies to his argument, right? You can link any two things together if you try. But is that valid? The more important question is how convincing are the links that you draw? But yeah, he's not making that no, point. He's, um, he's not so. making a good argument. I think, yeah, I think we've explained it enough, but I, I'm pretty sure most people listening would appreciate that you can understand evolution without requiring a theological level of analysis. Yeah, in in that sense, like it's you know it's close to intelligent design, right? Is arguing that there's a mysterious process in evolution that you you simply cannot explain as a materialist. Yeah. 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 So a point which derives from this, which leads us on to his colorful metaphors, is that alongside seeing rationalists and materialists or Sam Harris types as as being fundamentally wrong. Um, he also takes issue with anybody who would credit 
the development of reason and democracy and, and the modern West to the Enlightenment. And there's this really nice quote where he explains why that's wrong. And it, it invokes uh, a metaphor that he uses elsewhere. So let me, let me just play that for you, Matt. What we're talking about here is something that's indescribably deeper than merely what happened in the Enlightenment. I just see that as a, in some sense, as a sideshow of this crystalline process that's emerging. So, so what's the crystalline yeah, process? Yeah, that's the Mark? that's the question. <laughs> can, no, can you explain no, that? I cannot explain that. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, perhaps not surprisingly, JBP is not a fan of attributing good things to the Enlightenment or that general period of of empirical or rationalist type of thought because he likes attributing the good things to Christianity. And, you know, there's, as you know, there's there's some limited way in which that is true. Obviously, obviously Christianity had a big influence on that part of the world and, you know, through the, the kinds of things that happened through the Reformation and so on, I'm sure there are all kinds of influences one could trace back. But I guess what he's trying to do is really cast this, this grand narrative, a grand Christian narrative, um, sweep of history, in, in in which pretty much anything good and you know he 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 likes the word logos a lot because that's kind of um, free speech and in in his mind it's also the word but it's also consciousness and it's also the sense of order and 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 good generally so so he would see that expressed in the enlightenment if i if i'm understanding him right <laughs> no, I'm confused. <laughs> so, okay, you're saying that the Enlightenment is just like an instantiation of a a, a deeper philosophical force, right? The the logo that's up. That's it. You're totally getting Jordan Peterson now, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> so, I this the, this crystalline structure metaphor, I I think is connected to that, right? Where he, in response to some, I I, I remember it as like a fairly direct, you know straightforward back and forth between him and the interviewer and then he just like comes out with well why you were talking about that i was thinking about something and i just i want to play it because it, it took me by surprise when i first heard it well when you when you asked that question i had a vision and and the vision was of um a plane of of earth barren earth with a gigantic crystalline structure underneath forcing itself upward and breaking up the, the dirt. And that's exactly how I would answer that question. It's that there's this great idea <clears throat> attempting to manifest itself. Like it manifested itself, for example, in the, in the decimation of slavery, right? Because there was an idea and the idea was, well, all men are created equal. That's the idea. And that's idea is, is rooted in a much deeper idea, which is that there's a spark of divinity in everyone. And that's this logos capacity that, that, that enables people to name things and, and give form to the world and that we're not to violate that. And that was, that emerged, you know, you could say, well, that emerged tremendously slowly, but didn't emerge slowly at all, man. It, it, the idea is only in its thoroughly formulated sense. The idea is only about 2000 years old it emerged with incredible okay. rapidity. So that 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 is that is one hell of a metaphor. But I mean, the the I'm just gonna my the, the thing the thing that struck me as I was listening to that was that when when I hear Jordan Peterson giving credit to white European Christianity for for um, destroying slavery, I can I can hear a million critical race theorists crying out in pain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
that, that they they may have played a small role in that period history as well, right? Yeah, and uh, there is a point where the the interviewer brings that up and asks him how does he defend Christian atrocities. And you you might imagine that he responds to that and gives a clear answer, but I don't think I even have where he answered because there isn't a straightforward response. There's winding paths. So I, I can't even remember what his answer to that was. No. Do you have any idea? No, I don't think he really answered it. I think he just went off on several tangents of tangents. Oh, sorry. Actually, I've just realized that what we just listened to. That, oh, that was, was his answer, answer to that. <laughs> that was the answer. Yeah. yeah. So that was the initial answer was that question was posed. And when he was asked about that, he imagined a giant crystal. I think that's quite telling, right? And then, and then he goes on to the enlightenment and how, you know, that isn't actually the answer. So, yeah. So does that answer the question correctly about like why we shouldn't also, you know, attribute to Christianity, say the divine rule of kings or the the civilizing yeah, yeah. mission. So, no, it's just the good stuff, Chris, that we attribute to Christianity. Yeah, no, I mean, the more I think about this, the more it strikes me what a poor fit JVP is with the IDW because he, you know, all of the stereotypical things that people attribute to the IDW, he really is not on board with them. Yeah, I think he's an outlier in a bunch of respects, unless you include in IDW the conservative Christian wing, like Ben Shapiro and stuff. I think he shares more in 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 certain respects with their worldview than than people like Dawkins and yeah, Harris. Yeah, although even the Christian ones don't really emphasize it as part of their sort of worldview. I think, uh, yeah, I think WP is a little bit unique in the way that that everything is kind of linked to to Christianity. Yeah, and so... Another aspect of the worldview that it does relate to his interest in Christianity and which which struck me repeatedly through this and also through the 12 rules for life is that his characterization of what is the fundamental element of existence and being is remarkably bleak. <laughs> like his, He's got a focus on the side of humanity which is, you know, life is suffering and humans are depraved and dark creatures. And like he he does acknowledge positive aspects, like even even in that we should we should still, you know, fight for the light or that kind of thing. But but like he spends a lot more time in detailing the the fundamental yeah. nature of pain and that pain is the characteristic yeah. of existence. Yeah. Did, did you sure notice did. this? So, yeah, I think you got a clip there with uh, Descartes and he sort of um, starts talking about Descartes and you think he's going to talk about consciousness being, you know, I can perceive things and I'm aware of things and therefore, um, you know, that's kind of a starting point. But it's not, is it? It's it's suffering. Suffering is the starting point. Yeah, let's let's play it and we'll go from there. You know, Descartes' great investigation into doubt led him to the conclusion that I think, therefore I am. And I don't think by think, he meant think the way we think. He meant more like I'm, uh, the fact that I'm consciously aware is something that I cannot deny. That's good, that's fine. And, and you know, more power to Descartes for taking it to that, to that extreme and then producing 
what he did produce out of that. But I, I don't, for me, when I investigated the structure of doubt, the conclusion that I drew was that there is nothing more real than suffering. Yeah, so whereas Descartes may say, I think, therefore, I am, for Jordan Peterson, it's, I suffer, yeah. therefore, Yeah, and later on, he, he emphasizes that happiness is more about, in terms of how people act and behave, it's more about avoiding suffering rather than um, approaching and, and, and pursuing happiness. Um, and uh, he's quite explicit about that. Yeah, as we can hear here. Because they're not differentiating. Like there's the positive emotion end of being happy and there's the not suffering end of being happy. And what people mean when they say that they want to be happy is that they don't want to be suffering. Yeah, so it's the, it's the cessation of negative emotions, not joy. And I will say there's validity to that point. When you're measuring affective response in psychology, you measure positive effect and negative effect. And you can... You can decrease negative effect without increasing positive effect, right? So they are they're separate concepts, yeah. but it's his kind of relentless focus that when people say they want to be happy, what they really mean is like they don't want pain and suffering and fatigue and, and negative feelings. I, I'm kind of like, is that true? <laughs> like, do, do, are, are people really, you know, not talking about, you know, they want to enjoy life and have pleasurable <laughs> monuments and that kind of thing. And the amount that he, he fixates on this, that this says more about him than necessarily the human condition. Yeah, um, I mean, it's, it's hard to escape the suspicion that this is the philosophy of someone who um, has had a problem with opiates. <laughs> or would go, or would on, go to. on to. Yeah, I mean... You know, he, you know, I don't think, I, th I think it's clear that just personally, he is uh, someone who suffers from angst and, um, yeah, has sublimates that in various ways, perhaps. But sorry, Chris, I'm, I find it hard to say something cogent about that. No, I, I, I think you did. I think the point that, like, somebody who would become addicted to painkillers would think that the fundamental element of existence is pain. And this is the core motivating factor, right? That does seems yeah, relevant. Yeah. So, look, I mean, this is more just an observation, more of a, a criticism or anything. But I guess, yeah, I mean, um, I think one of the interesting points that comes out of this talk is very much that uh, he, he has quite a bleak outlook, as you said. It's 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 quite dark, and he talks about the role of evil in people's lives, you know, the evil that they inflict on themselves. But he also emphasizes that, you know, coming into contact with uh, evil people, really, and that this is the cause of many issues. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying he's right or wrong about that, but it just, the, the general picture is a very bleak one. Yeah. And the link at the, the previous point that we were making, he talks about the issue of suffering and its fundamental nature to philosophers as opposed to materialists. And let me, let me just play. From the perspective of the materialist, there's nothing more real than the atom, let's say. Okay, from the perspective of a philosopher of being, alternatively, there's nothing more real than suffering. Right, like that, that puts it in quite stark contrast. And I think you're feeling that like we shouldn't, that we, we do, we're not attacking him for his personal focus on pain. I think the element of criticism comes from the fact that he's not describing this as just like his personal philosophy or view. He is instead attributing it to 
philosophers worldwide and to humanity writ large. That's the issue. It It's making subjective assessments and connections and portraying them as obviously true, fundamentally correct fa- facts. Yeah, like a broad consensus among every philosopher who's thought about it. And, you know, there's certainly themes in philosophy, whether it's existentialists or Stoics or whomever, who do emphasize pain and suffering yeah so you know like it's not it's not out there it's just uh it's just an important yeah theme uh and flavor to jbp's way of thinking yeah and uh, so just before we get off the pain (laughs) the pain there's there's an aspect where he is discussing like a lot of this pain comes up when he is talking about being and what he means by being and how this is a more fundamental force in the world than the kind of materialist one. And listen to the way he describes pain from this perspective. People's actions indicate that they believe in their own pain. And that's undeniable. You can't argue yourself out of it. So it's, it's, it transcends rationality. And so it's real. It's an axiomatic tenet of, the, of, of religious systems, generally speaking, that life is suffering, which is a restatement of exactly the same thing. And so being is the domain in which pain announces itself as real. And that's not the material world. It's not the material world. Pain is not a material phenomena. Right. So the part for me where the argument breaks down is again that pain outside of human subjective experiences or, you know, or or at least like some physical experience for some conscious being, it doesn't make sense because there isn't a fundamental force floating through the universe that's like, you know, pain. Like it, maybe maybe in the Marvel conception of the universe, there is a, a character that does that. But in the world as we know it, that fundamental element of existence is like a subjective experience of conscious beings. And he seems to regard it more as like a platonic ideal, which transcends rationality, transcends the material realm. Yeah. But like, yeah, look, how? I mean, yeah, look, obviously <laughs> right. the issue that we're talking about is is dualism, where JVP is coming at it from this sort of platonic, dualistic, whatever. We're not philosophers, so we're not going to pretend to be. But, you know, where these these mental states and, and consciousness is is a real thing in the same way that atoms are real and perhaps more real because that's the stuff that we actually experience. Whereas sciencey, materialisty type people who aren't philosophers of mind like you and I say, hey, these are just um, emergent phenomena that, that, that arise out, out of the physical world. Now, you and I aren't going to be, we, we don't want to deal with <laughs> the issue of dualism in, in this podcast, but yeah, it's just worth noting that JBP is definitely of the brand that treats these uh, philosophical and theological and, and, and spiritual things as having a, a real basis in reality. Yeah, and I think the issue that I'm going to take is, so while there are many people in this audience, including himself, who are very upset with postmodern scholars, for their denial of objective reality and their tendency to engage in obscurantism and and play games with definitions. 
all of the things that we're talking about fall into that category. And there was there was this part where he's asked a question and to answer it, again, you know, it's like the crystal structure thing. He begins by saying, well, let's think about the spiritual essence <laughs> of a lemon. And, and like, when I heard it, I was like, why? Why Why do I have to go down this tortured route thinking about the essence of a lemon and how it reveals the lack of a dichotomy between spirituality and reality? And like, does it, you know, does thinking about a lemon do that? So again, Matt, I, I think hearing the clip itself might help <laughs> yeah. might, might help the audience understand the persuasiveness of this point. The concept of material reality is a post-enlightenment concept. So, I mean, if you look, for example, at how the alchemists described things prior to the emergence of the material world, they, they discuss the, 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 the nature of the essence of the lemon. Well, le- you know, a lemon is solar in essence. It partakes of the sun. Well, it needs the sun. It's yellow like the sun. It has the same, it has the same stuff as the sun. The sun is golden. The sun is mercurial. The sun is illuminating. Like it has all sorts of attributes that we would consider spiritual. There, there was no distinction between the spiritual and the material. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. I, well, it <laughs> does, does that it does, up? Okay. Look, I'm, I'm going to talk JVP's corner here for a moment. And okay. let's, let's say he's merely being descriptive, right? He's describing how alchemists and, and so on in the pre-scientific era approached things. And lemons, for a instance, lemon. that's <laughs> nothing wrong. <laughs> You've got to get past the lemon. <laughs> um, so, okay. You know, and, you know, that's, that's valid. Of course, there's a lot of, lot of magical thinking was kind of interwoven with natural philosophy for many hundreds of years. But... You know, is he saying they were right? Like, is he yeah, saying, is, that's, is, yeah, that's the issue. I'm, I'm fine with you describing, you know, alchemists and what they previously imagined as the sympathetic magic kind of things, right? Like a lemon is yellow and the sun looks kind of yellow. So they're connected and it's a plant. So we know that it does derive like all this stuff. That's fine. But isn't he saying... They were yeah, right. I think so. I, I think he's saying that that the truths arrived at through, you know, obviously religion is a pre-scientific concept, and to a large degree, a way of understanding the world. I suppose, you know, why why do events happen? Why do why do bad things happen to good people, and and so on? Why is God angry with us? Yeah, he he has a lot of respect for the pre-scientific, for want of better for want of a better phrase, uh, view of the world. So to me, that sounds remarkably familiar for respect for other ways yeah. of knowing, which is supposed to be a, a boogeyman that, that the postmodernists are trying yeah, to Yeah, I in. totally agree with that point. I mean, critical theory has been, and social justice has been famously described as a religion, as if that's uh, a very bad thing. But yeah, JPP for one is all for religion and all for a religious way of constructing meaning out of the world. So yeah, it's perfectly at home with the uh, social constructionists and postmodernists generally. Yeah, and there's a there's a part later where the interviewer tries to get him to characterize the difference between himself and postmodern because this critique has been raised before of his work. There's a bunch of rules of the game and this is why the postmodernists by the way are wrong about the infinity of interpretations. They're wrong 
There is an infinity of inter potential interpretations, but there isn't an infinity of viable interpretations, and that's the issue. That's the critical issue. So what constrains the range of interpretations? Well, let's say there's a, an infinite number of ways of construing the world. Well, there are, and that's, that's again the postmodernist take, right? It's not only can you interpret texts an infinite number of ways, but the world is a text, and it can be interpreted in a number of ways, and so you can't define any particular mode of interpretation as canonical. That's the fundamental claim. Okay, let's take that apart. Wrong. And he argues that the distinction between himself and the postmodernists is that his realm of possible interpretations and, or meanings or whatever is, is constrained by the fact that he recognizes the forces of biological reality and evolution and that kind of thing. But as we've already seen, his commitment to a hardcore empirical evolutionary framework is relatively, you know, the grasp <laughs> is not firm. So I, I don't know. And I also don't think that the argument of postmodern philosophers who, again, I claim no expertise over, but I don't think their argument is like there is absolutely no interpretation no, that is no, wrong no no of course that's that's a bit of a straw man i mean but where it's congruent with jvp is is that they perhaps would would emphasize the the social construction of meaning and and saying that 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 the, that overlaying the material reality that that the way things are perceived and and the way it, it's negotiated uh, socially is is of great importance you know and there's obviously some truth to that but you can't criticize them for that and also be a fan of JBP, basically, I think. Yeah, and, and be consistent at least. There there's there's definitely overlap in in those perspectives. And him simply saying that his reasoning is more constrained, it's it feels like a relatively weak well, argument. It, it's pretty weak given that he sees that the, the theological reality gives gives rise that evolution has to encompass that theological reality so it's it's not much of a concession to say that he takes into account the capital s science of of evolutionary biology when he sees that that is itself strongly based on on theological stuff yeah and so to take it to bigger themes i i think it's reasonable to folk like because if you sit back and just consume the talk i think we both experience this if you don't question the connections being drawn and you can just follow along in some sense it's kind of convincing and compelling because you you just get this narrative story almost about how the world works how all these things are connected and even if individual parts give you pause it does come together in a coherent narrative and i think that's part of the appeal that he offers and which many of the gurus that we look at offer, you're being inducted into this select group of people who can see these hidden connecting structures which apply across culture, across religion, across time, and are like so fundamental. So yeah, you might be talking about transgender people getting into the bathrooms, but actually it's connected to the eternal battle between the forces of good and yeah, evil. Yeah, so he really, he, he really does provide these and in his words maps of meaning it's not really a it's not a logical or an analytical thing that he's doing it's a, a network of associations and feelings so 
I described it as poetry early on because I think that's why people like it and I think that's the mode in which he is communicating. So that that initial clip which we played where he went from, he explained political correctness in terms of the word and consciousness and chaotic potentials and, you know, which creates habitable orders but also dissolves habitable orders and the hero, like it's just a scattergun of, of associations which if you sit back and let it, wash over you is is quite sort of pleasant to listen to like i find jbp annoying when i try to understand exactly what he's saying and and what his argument is um but if i don't try to do that if i just just sit back and listen to it as if it's like art of some kind then i can see i could certainly see the appeal because it it does give it's very vague but it definitely gives kind of a sense a sense of meaning like a, it, it gives a it gives a grand narrative without actually and and, it, and when you're doing that kind of thing it's actually a, a negative to be specific i can understand why it doesn't want to be pinned down because it's not about being pinned down and, and being specific it's about it's about providing the flavor yeah yeah so like you say staying away from the specifics is a good idea and if you're going to do specifics you should make it into a narrative, which is compelling. So a really good example of this, a clear one, and one I want to like bring up is when he's discussing how compelling a mysterious Christian iconography is. So here's here's him discussing Christian iconography and, and its complexity. The reason for that is it's too complicated for us to articulate. So it's bottom up, it's bottom up development. It's like the, the, the iconography of Christianity is an attempt to express something that we're not yet smart enough to understand. Mm. So we're not, we're not yet smart enough to understand Christian iconography. And this relates to a story he tells where he went to an art museum and he spent some time like setting this up in, I think in New York, where there was a bunch of pictures from the Renaissance era, but people were coming to see a particular picture of Mary and Jesus. And this is the end of that story. And there were a lot of people standing in front of the painting looking at it. And I thought, well, let's be a cultural anthropologist about this. All right. That museum is on some of the most expensive real estate in the world. There's a tremendous amount of time and effort spent on producing the museum and fortifying it and guarding it. And then people from all over the world make pilgrimages to stand in front of it. And what they are looking at, they do not understand. So what the hell are they doing there? Why are they looking at those pictures? Well, the answer is the pictures speak to their soul, but not in the language that they understand. Yeah. Okay. So Chris, Chris, I'll go first. So... That sounds, that sounds compelling to me. Um, you know, I've, I've got this, I've got this image of, um, yeah, you know, people coming and marveling at these, at these ancient mystical objects. And clearly, why would they go to all that trouble and spend so much time and effort to, to, to put themselves in their presence and be in, in, entranced by these objects? They're clearly speaking to them, I think, on some kind, and communicating to them on some kind of ineffable spiritual level. That seems, that seems right to me. Yeah, yeah, doesn't it? So, so let me make a, a counter argument to that point mm. and, and see if we, okay. we can spitball it. So, when I when I lived in London, there was an art museum which is quite well known called the Tate Modern, 
in that art museum, there is modern art, as the name might suggest. And I have a feeling that there are a lot of people coming from various places around the world to look at modern art, including things like, well, Jordan Peterson might be interested in this, but like Andy Warhol's lobster phone, right? And setting aside the deep truth that lobsters communicate to us spiritually, there's plenty of art in there that I doubt that Jordan Peterson or others would regard as speaking deeply to the soul. There's things which are like a shade of blue or abstract objects arranged in unusual shapes. So fixating on like people come to look at a Christian painting and that that gives us some important insight about how deep Christian iconography is. Like, yeah, does exactly. it? Yeah, so I, that, that's the thing. Jordan's analogies and argument sounds good you know it feel it feels right when you listen to it as long as you don't think about it too carefully <laughs> which is i think that's the mistake you made there chris <laughs> you, you. Uh, yeah i i have a i have an entire folder from this episode which is just called questionable claims <laughs> and, and it's it's full of things like this but the people might say well you're, you're fixating on like a small detail in his grander narrative but but his grander narrative is just made up of a collection of like these smaller details. And this is the evidence that is used to support the bigger yeah. connections. So that's an issue. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, we don't have time to go through every single metaphor and every single chain of reasoning. But the ones we've we've looked at are pretty representative of 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 all of them, I think. And yeah, they're pretty weak. Like they don't really. I mean, yes, you can you can put these things together and use it as the raw material with which to create a sweeping narrative. And as a work of art or or poetry, uh, I think that's perfectly fine. But it shouldn't be taken as any kind of 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 rational argument or or analytical argument it's it's an associative argument of of feeling so yeah i think it's a fair criticism yeah and okay since you're not gonna let me go through all the questions well <laughs> i i want two of the superstars from that category to mention one is that the sentiment which people attach to furniture so like you've got a favorite chair or whatever that that is a more fundamental and important thing to understand about a chair than its material reality. And you can dissociate the, the object itself from the, let's call it the subjective overlay, but that's not such an easy thing to do. And it's not so self-evident. And it's not even obvious that what you're doing when you do that is coming up with a, a more accurate picture of reality. Right. So he, he, this is again him kind of saying like there's an ineffable element of existence and the, the sentiments that are attached to objects may be more important than the object's physical reality. Right. Now, when you make that kind of argument, my brain immediately goes like important to who or on what basis do you judge that? Because sure, in regards to like individual people who have connections with the chair, there is memories attached to that and, and emotions attached to it. But it isn't true to say that that's a fundamentally deeper truth about the chair than the fact that it's made from wood, right? It, it just depends on your question or what you're asking. But 
they take the chair out of that context and just give it to someone who doesn't have all those connections. And that's not a deeper reality of the chair that's like no, carried along it's, with it's it. A, it's a reality that's in your head. And as, yeah. as a psychologist, it's kind of surprising that JPP doesn't, doesn't emphasize that. Yeah. And that, that, that's unobjectionable to say like a person has a, you know, psychological connection to an object, which can be fundamentally more important than the object. But that, that isn't what he says. That's only the, you know, the Ma and Bailey argument. And there's, there's another illustration where he's talking about a pro footballer and it's a short clip. So I'll just play it for you. It's like the life of a pro football player. Is that real life or is that a game? Well, at some point, the game is life, right? And, and so then the question is, well, what should the game be? And Piaget's answer was, well, the game should be one that everyone agrees to play. Okay, so yeah, that, that's yeah. part of a bigger yeah. conversation related to like rituals and rules and the way that they are a microcosm of society. Um, but the point I want to make in highlighting that analogy is this thing about is a professional footballer playing a game or living life? That relies on like this, this kind of, uh, I don't, metaphorical trick or linguistic trick that a footballer's livelihood is derived from playing yeah. a game. Yeah, yeah. But, but he's using it to make a point that games and life are in some ways like kind of interconnected and hard to distinguish. But, but that specific example is just, it just relies on the fact that, you know, profession somebody who plays a game professionally earns their livelihood from a game it feels like a a cheap trick of, of an yeah. argument because like obviously obviously a pro, pro footballer is playing a game and they get paid to play the game that's like there isn't a mystery there <laughs> no no yeah yeah sorry, no, no, sorry, i know what man. you mean it's it's the linguistic tricks like playing playing on double meanings of words like game uh, and using that to support, a, you know, an argument, which is a pretty, it's a pretty, um, it's a stretch of an argument and you can't, and so to support it using pretty weak tools like that is not very good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And okay. So look, we've, 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 we've went down a bunch of negative uh, roads and we've probably deeply offended all the Peterson fans in our audience. So maybe we should shift back at least for a minute just to say about some of the reasonable or semi-reasonable stuff he says or any of the things that you find. I have some ideas, but maybe you uh, have your oh, own. Oh, I did, I did have some positive things and I've kind of forgotten them after our long diatribes. <laughs> um, I... Okay, maybe I can get you started. So, so one of the things that I thought he does do well is that when he's talking about psychology, he's at one point arguing about the problems with our measurement instruments for when we talk about well-being. He kind of goes into a methodological critique of the psychological measures of well-being and how they're imprecise and how our measurement instruments are basically not up to scratch when it comes to psychological science to make extreme statements. That's a big problem for someone who wants to do scientific measurement. It's like, okay, we're going to increase well-being. Hey, no problem. How are you going to measure it? And whose well-being? 
And mine, okay, mine now, mine next week, mine next month, mine in a year, how about 10 years, how about 50? And who chooses who, how to measure it? Well, precisely, and, and my well-being in relationship to my significant other, in relationship to my family, in relationship to the community, at all those levels of temporal distinction, you're gonna measure that, eh? Good luck. And I, I, I thought that, and some of the other parts where he talks about psychology, are good and accurate and like important points. Uh, and, and similarly, when he's criticizing Sam Harris for having like a worldview and a set of suppositions, which he doesn't acknowledge as being important to arrive at his conclusions, that all seems reasonable. The facts themselves cannot tell you that. And that's why you have an a priori interpretive structure, which is, of course, what Kant was insisting upon. And Sam doesn't take that into account. And that's mind boggling to me because that a priori interpretive structure is the sum total of the effect of our evolutionary history. So like, what about that? So, I mean, I just wanted to highlight that he clearly does have, you know, expertise, including in psychology, and he, he can make well-argued, coherent mm. points. <laughs> like, it yeah, is possible. Yeah, it is possible. I think when he, if he's talking about some specific or technical thing, then he's 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 well able to string an argument together. He def, um, I think it's more that the subject of his attention is so big and broad and so all-encompassing with the theory of life stuff that it, it um, I think he just overreaches terribly. So I, I, I think if I was to sort of turn it around and, and try to defend him a little bit and almost qualify a lot of our criticisms is that, you know, in his his emphasis on the subjective and subjective experience and and meaning and so on, um, I, I dispute the, the terms like theological and casting things in terms of um, good and evil and so on. But in terms of that, that subjectivity, as a clinical psychologist and as someone who writes self-help books, you know, in many ways, it's very right and natural for him to have that um, obsessive concern with that non-material aspects of life, you know. So that's that's not controversial or particularly bad in as far as it goes, yeah. To, w w would you agree with that, Chris? Yeah, yeah. I, I, like in terms of, if you regard him as a theologically inclined self-help guru, I, I think it becomes a lot more tolerable. The issue is that he's also simultaneously treated as an empirical psychologist who's very science-orientated, science and evidence-orientated. And those two hats don't sit uh, neatly together. There's a torture <laughs> metaphor. You know, that's, that's <laughs> right. That's right. And so the feedback I get from people who, who like JBP, I don't think that they're reading him or listening to him and taking the stuff as like literal truth or literal facts about the world. Um, I mean, well, I think most of them, most of the time, I think they tend to take it as stimulating things to think about. So I, I, I suspect that many people who like his work um, are not are not maybe taking him at his, taking his words at such face value or taking them as seriously as we are. Like we're we're taking 
what he's saying, what he's arguing for and saying, does that stack up? Does that actually make sense? Have you considered alternative explanations? Is it actually supported by the examples and metaphors that you're giving? And it's usually not. So, but if you take it as as kind of inspirational poetry or, or self-help, now that's a much lower bar, and if it, it's a bit like it's a bit like the modern art you were talking about, the the lobster on the telephone or a, a big blue square. You know, if it if it speaks to you, then y- you know um, <laughs> that all's well and good. Yeah, yeah. Well, like an, another point that I think people would probably bring up if they've watched it is that towards the end of the interview, he he does acknowledge quite openly his possibility to be mistaken and that he's really thinking out loud. Most of the time I I have a, a, a skeleton. There's the argument. There's a skeletal outline. I see where how I'm going to get from point A to B to C. And then when I'm talking, like today, it's an exploration. It's not, here's what I think. It's right. And you should believe it. It's like, no, I'm, 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 that I'm trying to rectify my errors and extend what I know when I'm speaking and when I'm listening. And so I think that genuinely is what I'm doing. And I genuinely don't want to give people advice. It's something I've learned not least by being a psychotherapist. It's like your destiny is not mine to, to mess with. I don't want to be responsible for your decisions. What if I'm wrong? Mm. So that I I actually think you know that's a very positively expressed epistemic humility and acknowledgement that he is riffing a lot of the time, just connecting things and seeing where they go. But the issue I would take is that that comes at the end of the interview, and it reminds me of when Eric and Brett Weinstein issued at the end of their two hour episode where they basically allege all this misconduct by Carol Greeder, um, you know, targeting Brett. And then at the end, they say, of course, we might be wrong and we don't, you know, everybody's memory is fallible and there's two sides to every story. But they they don't display any of that humility throughout the episode, as we, you know, showed on the first episode we released. And the same applies here, that like there is very little of this epistemic humility throughout the no. preceding hours. So yeah, it's exactly. It, it, yeah, that's that's my problem too. That throughout the whole thing, like, there's no qualification. There's no there's no caveats. Uh, it's very vehement and and uh, as if it's as if you know you can't possibly disagree with this because it's just so it's so logically forceful uh, is is the impression. Even though as we've talked about, it's usually not. So, you know, I really liked what you played there. That sounded great to me in, in and of itself. I remember that from, from the video. But, yeah, as you say, it's not enough just to issue that disclaimer at the end because it is like having your cake and eating it too, isn't it? Like it, it, it's like the conspiracy yeah. hypotheses. And there's his position as a self-help guru. And I also find in this some segments where it's really clear why people would form such a personal attachment to him because he comes across and I think I don't think this is like feigned or insincere I think he is somebody that gets 
emotionally invested and who is very, very uh, personally involved in his philosophy, right? He he really believes it. And there's there's this point where he talks about how he wants to help people. And and I thought it was it was quite, I don't know the word, poignant or uh, quite telling of his approach. I truly want the best for what wants the best in you. Yeah. Okay. And people love that. They love that, man. If, if, you're react, if you're interacting with people with that ethos in mind, they find that, well, I think that's partly why people are responding so positively to my videos, because that ethos informs the videos. I'm saying, I'm trying to figure out what's the best for us. Really, like, the best. Yeah, endearing. I, yeah, I, um, yeah the, the, the final thing I'll say about, on that theme is that I, yeah, I find that aspect of him where he is clearly thinking, thinking aloud and thinking as he's talking. And I think it's it's true, you know, what he said about he's figuring stuff out. I mean, the, the downside of that is, of course, he's just kind of he's just he's just riffing. He's 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 like improvising all the way through, and that's a good reason. That's a prime reason why a lot of it doesn't make sense. But I. Just, just in terms of a subjective impression, I actually find it a little bit endearing, you know, that willingness to think on your feet and sort of talk, you know, think aloud. Um, yeah. 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 I, 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 I sometimes use the same <laughs> technique at lectures, right? So I'm not knocking uh, someone for doing that. And, and he deserves credit for acknowledging that. It's, yeah, I think it just sits uneasily with the the level of certitude that he displays in all our segments and and in general throughout his material he basically gives the impression look i thought about these things a yeah. lot and my conclusions are not reached lightly so treat them treat them that way but that yeah. that might be true but i'm not sure that he's done the requisite like critical reflection on a bunch of the ideas which are now pretty crystalline yeah. well look i mean concrete. it's a bit like that Martin bailey thing we talked about before where he where he has it both ways you know that's both he means both the very forceful and concrete specific thing but also the very but you know you could also take it um as the very nebulous insubstantial thing so he applies that to him to himself and his own material and he said when he's actually uh, presenting the ideas it's it's absolute certainty but he it, it's also just speculation at the same time so i just yeah. you can't really have it both ways can you yeah yeah it's uh he has an emotional investment in his audience and and expresses it right and and it, whenever we're talking about the techniques that you know people can use it's not to infer that those techniques are used insincerely, but just that they they do have a powerful effect on the audience. I think this is why people in part respond so defensively to him being criticized or whatever, because it, they they feel that his heart is in the right yeah, place. Yeah, uh, it could well be. Um, it's it, it's hard to know, isn't it? Um, but I I agree with you that that he is passionate and uh, feels very strongly. And I'm sure um, that that's, that's, that's part of the appeal. Well, he breaks, he breaks down in tears in multiple times of, in his audiobook, Right. And the thing is when you're recording an audiobook, presumably it isn't live. Right? Yeah. 
you you could go back and edit that out but he chose to leave in the edits where he's you know in tears in multiple times so i think the emotional displays and i i haven't watched like most of the content on his youtube channel but i, I gather that is something which happens um and i i like on the one hand it's to his credit to show emotional fragility or you know uh like expressiveness publicly given that he's seen as this quite strident conservative figure but on the other hand it does feel a little bit potentially manipulative mm. for parts of the yeah, audience yeah there's a there's a charitable interpretation and a slightly less charitable interpretation isn't there um i think i think we'll i think we'll have to remain yeah. agnostic on that <laughs> on that one yeah just just a point to note so okay Let's return to something okay. fun. <laughs> All right, Matt. And so for something fun, we've kind of already discussed it a bit, but I think looking at the way that some of the material really comes across as almost indistinguishable from New Age, kind of crystal fair stuff, it's hard to overstate how much that is the case. So I'm just going to play you a, a clip that might illustrate that. If you... If you contaminate the structure of your being huh, with, with false information, with deceptive practices, and you willfully blind yourself, then you're going to be led astray by your sense of meaning. You're going to pathologize it. So part of the issue here is that you don't want to interfere with your ability to see because you'll wander off the road into a ditch. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, those are some words. Yeah. So how, how do you interpret uh, that? Yeah, Matt? it's it's almost like uh, yeah that uh, new age idea of you need to open your third eye in order to be guided along the correct path. Mm. Yes, it it is like that. So funny you should mention. Let's just listen to one more. Because clip. we're evolved for that, we we can tell when it's happening, and that's what the sense of meaning is. the se The sense of meaning is it's it's our third eye. You could say. Your, your eyes blind you because they only see what's here, right in, what's here right in front of you now. They blind you. And so you have to use m modes of perception that transcend mere vision in order to conceptualize being properly. And one of those modes is the sense of meaning and engagement. So the third eye, you do have to open your third eye. <laughs> you do eye. indeed, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, yeah, look, it, that is very Deepak Chopra-esque. He's definitely got a real interest in the, I have to call it the ineffable, you know, it, it, like we've talked about this earlier on, but he really has much like a traditional new age guru. He's very interested in these, in these deep truths that are so profound that they can't be made explicit so it's it's um it's true mysticism or spiritualism i suppose yeah and uh, okay so i i promise this is the last one i'll play but speaking to that i i actually have a clip which i call deepak peterson um and explicitly discusses mystics so okay I, you can handle one more right uh, yeah bring it on we we don't understand ourselves that that's obvious we don't, we're more than we can understand. Yes, by a tr tremendous margin. And we're trying to understand ourselves. And the artists and the mystics are at the vanguard of the development of that understanding. And they come up with ideas that are clearer than mere feelings. 
but are not yet clear. Clear, clearer than mere feelings, but are not yet clear. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just one example out of many thousands. I think during this talk, it's a, to me, you know, it feels like an over reliance on metaphorical and mystical sounding language to to imbue points that you want to make with a profundity because there's charitable interpretations of what he's saying which are like the human sense of meaning derives from the evolutionary history which is deeper than any individual person and goes across generations so focusing just on you know your individual life doesn't tell you about how certain cognitive architecture evolved in humans or so on right there's there's ways that you can interpret this in a meaningful coherent sense but but that also applies in the case of like a lot of what new age gurus are saying as well there there are interpretations of them which are less mystical and more metaphorical and and yeah and he seems to jump back and forth depending on the argument as to whether he's being like an empirical scientist or whether he's actually talking about an ineffable metaphysical reality yeah, yeah that's right i mean you know for instance he says um that it's very difficult for us to understand ourselves that we don't have the the resources to truly understand ourselves and you know that's that's a aphorism but it's it's true right <laughs> you know it's it's true on a certain level it's just that it's it's true in that kind of new agey superficial way which is yes but so what you know um Mm. Yeah, yeah. And okay, so switching topics slightly, another example, a kind of clear example, which brings this out, this this problem about the tension of metaphorical versus literal interpretations comes when he gets pushed on the issue of the resurrection of Jesus and whether it is a real event or a metaphorical one. So maybe I'll start us off with a clip of him discussing this. Did his body resurrect? I don't know. I don't know. It is, the accounts aren't clear, for one thing. What the accounts mean isn't clear. I don't know what happens to a person if they bring themselves completely into alignment. I've had intimations of what that might mean. We don't understand the world very well. We don't understand how the world could be mastered if it was mastered completely. We don't know how an individual might be able to manage that. We don't know what transformations that might make possible. Mm, So did he bodily resurrect Matt? He is saying that we don't know the world like we think we do. And, you know, if you master meaning, what? kind of transformations yeah actually it reminds me of the you'd be you'd know more about this than me chris but the buddhist kind of ambiguity about sort of what happens when you truly achieve enlightenment like i think there are some mystical interpretations which say that when a human being accomplishes that then they they kind of have supernatural powers um just just like jordan peterson is implying heavily implying about you know, Christ having fully um, come completely into alignment and mastered meaning and therefore be able to accomplish things like coming back from the dead. Is that a, am I right in thinking that's a bit of a Buddhist thing as well? 
Yeah, but uh, like a lot of religious traditions and Buddhism is no exception. Going along the path to enlightenment includes the development of supernatural powers in in classical texts. And there's also various traditions like the Theravada tradition typically does acknowledge that the Buddha was a, a human who reached enlightenment and entered nirvana. But the later... Or, or oh God, I'm getting into like uh, Buddhist sectarian disputes, but the the Mahayana <laughs> traditions, which are possibly later, but at least are a splinter sect, they instead saw the Buddha as a being that was putting on the display of being a human, but was actually all, all already enlightened. And and I like so there's there's many there's many layers in these traditions, yeah. right? It's not just no. Christianity which has this ambiguity. Yeah, but that's in the it. point, isn't it? That at this sort of abstract level that um, Jordan Peterson is speaking to, it's a kind of a, a theme which you see in New Age stuff, in Buddhist stuff, and in this kind of transcendental Christian stuff as well. Yeah, and in the interview, uh, Jordan Levine pushes him by saying, right, but fundamentalists or Christians want to know this This metaphorical discussion is all well and good, but like, do you literally believe that Christ was reborn and that he rose from the dead? So let's hear him grapple a bit more with that question. Did he, is his resurrection real? Well, his spirit lives on. That's certainly the case. In what sense do you mean spirit? Just to qualify that. How, well, let, let's imagine that a spirit is a pattern of being. And we know that patterns can exist, in, patterns can be transmitted across multiple substrates, right? Vinyl, electronic impulses, air, vibrations in your ear, neurological patterns, dance. It's all the translation of what you might describe as a spirit, right? It's, it's that pattern. It's independent of its material substrate. Well, Christ's spirit lives on. It's, 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 a, it's had a massive effect across yeah, time. I'll jump in because that, <laughs> that's a returning to the kind of thing that really annoys me <laughs> as, a, as someone <laughs> who gets grumpy with poor argumentation because he's asked specifically about whether Christ literally resurrected and then he, he redefines living on in terms of the spirit living on in terms of any kind of of transcribed substrates and patterns of writing or dance or whatever and says that's the spirit and therefore you know a- avoids the direct question and instead redefines the, the the word lives on to to be such a broad general thing that it, it the answer is kind of meaningless so anyway i'll, I'll go that, that that triggered me sorry chris no, that's all right. And I mean, I think spending a couple, you know, 10 seconds or so to list the different patterns of vibrations that exist might be might be somewhat a deflection from the the main question. Mm. And and in that like in that case, in essence he's essentially endorsing a metaphorical interpretation, right? Well, well his influence yeah. exists in the world and like by spirit I mean the vibration of his teachings. But but there's another part. So the, this section goes on for quite a while. And this is him talking a bit more, I think maybe arguing against that a little bit. So let's see. 
Is there something more than merely metaphorical about the idea of being of dying and being reborn? Yes, there is because those are associated with physiological transformations How what's the ultimate extent of that? That's a good question You know the question is what happens to the world around you as you as you increasingly embody the logos and the answer to that is we don't know so I'm, I'm just going to say that wasn't the question, right? The, the, the question has been has been redefined there, and <laughs> and again, it's like the slipping in and out of endorsing a kind of magical, literal, physical resurrection, or at least dancing very, very close to that, and then like slipping immediately back to metaphorical mastery or transformation and like the different meanings that that can attend to but at the very beginning he acknowledges is it something more than a metaphor is it a physical thing yes but by the end he's back to talking about something which sounds fairly metaphorical or conceptual yeah. i mean there's a there's a pattern i've noticed it just occurred to me just now which is that when he's being slippery and avoiding giving uh, a direct answer that's when he tends to use those um, those um, terms of phrase that he's well known for. Like he'll those things like "that's a good question" or you know "that's very complicated." Actually, that's much more complicated. Or we don't know, you know. So, like I I, I see that he uses those a lot. Yeah, I I really like the. I mean, I like might be a strong word, but I get enjoyment from the fact that he so often engages in Socratic dialogues yeah. with himself. Yeah. <laughs> where he and it's it leads to like him often saying somebody presenting a point and then so it's like no you're wrong man <laughs> and, you know yeah. he, he has an interview there but he still uses these little internal dialogues and I think to some extent that is that's reflective of his mind that he's he's constantly kind of battling back and forth and and in fairness. He is usually falling on one side in those arguments, so it's it's kind of a rhetorical technique. But it, it yeah, like you say, it it comes out more on certain subjects than on yeah. others. And I have to say though, I I kind of like uh, just subjectively, I I enjoy it. You know, like it's quite engaging and a little bit I said it before endearing. Those those rhetorical patterns that he employs, it's like when I actually pay attention, like I am now, I. I go, hang on, <laughs> you're using this to to actually avoid saying anything concrete. But when I just listen to it casually, I, you know, I think the, those mannerisms are, are part of the appeal. So it's like some people will say it's a technique, but it's like, <laughs> no, it's it's not. No, it's, it's more complicated a, than that, it's Chris. A, it's very complicated. <laughs> yeah, it's more complicated. Yeah. yeah. I think you can both enjoy it and appreciate the like rhetorical value that it it lends his arguments. Both both things are possible, Matt. It, it, but you can have you can have both the best. I can of both, hold both those ideas in a state of sort of quantum superposition, Chris. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is exactly what I'm saying, <laughs> Matt. And okay, and the this this point about the the discussion about the resurrection and stuff and and this talk is about religion which means that it features quite a lot but the extent to which he is interested in theology and christianity it can't be overestimated and it leads me to this point i wanted to discuss where he's he's strongly emphasizing throughout many of the segments the unique 
aspect of Christianity and that it ties this in like, you know, Christianity and to a large extent, the West are seen as fundamentally connected. Uh, okay, so let me let me play a clip that might highlight the kind of thing I'm talking about. The Western imagination has been at work for a very long time, constructing up a meta meta hero and also his adversary, and clarifying the nature of those. And that has been done in a sufficiently delineated way so that it's produced a major it's produced a major impact on the manner in which our societies are constructed because the cornerstone of our society is respect for logos and that's instantiated in the doctrine of respect for free speech that also that it's also instantiated in the doctrine that every individual has transcendent value which i do believe is something that the west has developed to a far greater degree than any other culture that currently exists on that currently exists and probably ever existed that, that's a good example of the ability to jump from one topic to the next to the next and connect them all together. He's going from Christ as a meta-hero to him being an instantiation of the fundamental force of Logos and that being the basis for free speech and also connected to the development of human rights, which reached their epitome in Western civilization. And he, he's good at that, at putting it all together in a narrative. But I I think that the degree to which he focuses on the Western and Christian having these exceptional qualities, to me, it, it, it's, it's an example of an availability heuristic where he knows these traditions well and he's He's able to, you know, draw connections and link examples to it. And it isn't like Christianity is not connected to the development of the West. But like we've talked about earlier, the notion that respect for individuals is a is a feature only or like epitomized most in the West. Uh, I don't know. Do you, do you find it convincing? Well, you know, yeah, as you said, he, he links together. He's very good. He links together about seven different ideas into a narrative but you know each one of those connections is debatable um as always there's a a charitable interpretation which as you said obviously christianity was an important influence in the west you know cultural changes happened post-christianity as compared to pre-christianity in the west although it could be hard to separate it from all kinds of other historical developments that went on blah 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 but yeah as as you said it's partly the availability heuristic. Look, I mean, so putting aside the quality of his argument, which is not great, but it's a very short argument where he's putting together so many things it could never be that good. You know, I think the interesting thing to note is that he he is a, you know, a Western exceptionalist. He does believe that there's something very special, very special and and unique in the West in capital in capital letters. And he attributes that to Christianity, which I personally don't buy. Um, I think that there are things that are distinct, but what what about the emphasis on the individual? Because I mean, when he's talking about respect for truth and meta heroes, I I can't help but think of all there's there's right speech in the Buddhist tradition, and you. you you can find plenty of exhortations that the individual has to master themselves or that mastering the the passions of the mind and so on 
I think that there are concepts in other traditions. If you, if you look, and it doesn't mean that they're all equally distributed, but this notion that it's Christianity that led to the development of individualism in the West. I I know that there's there's mainstream scholars who make this point too, right? Like Joe Henrik is probably the most recent, arguing that the weird psychology, the so-called weird psychology that we see in Western societies, which include a focus on individualism, he, he traces it to the ban of cousin marriages in the Western Catholic Church. And, and this is a book that's just come out and articles that were published in Nature, which caused some controversy. But I mentioned that to say that he's not the only one drawing connections. And there are mainstream scholars who argued for these kind of things as well. But I I don't know. I, I, I'm not expressing it well, but I I just find that there's there, there's a kind of tautological quality to the arguments because it's looking at the you know what happened in history and what came before and saying well that that had to cause that and be the basis for that but the historical dice only gets rolled once so if it was a buddhist civilization who had the developed gunpowder to a greater extent it was like buddhist civilizations that i think discovered it but if they had dominated for various different reasons maybe we would have a human rights system that is less about the divinity of individual people and, and being recreated in Christ's image and more about like respect for all beings and sentient yeah. life. Yeah, of course. And, um, you know, Buddhism has got that um, very important tradition of focusing on, you know, internal, eternal individual enlightenment rather than, you know, as, as a, as a thing to strive for, which is, you know, an obviously an individual focus. Look, I think, what you're saying is is obviously true, which is that, in short, I don't know to what degree individualism is is a is a distinctive characteristic of Western culture as compared to other cultures. I know there's a lot of research on individualistic versus collectivist cultures and so on, but there's a real danger to looking at history with the motivation of finding a single dramatic sweep you know history is extremely complicated and isolating the causal factors uh is hard so i'm sure there are historians who argue it both ways in terms of the degree to which christianity inculcated a greater sense of individual rights or of individual freedoms or whatever in european countries so I, i'm not really sure yeah i guess my broader argument is that a whole bunch of the stuff that he presents is arguments which are already known and which fall broadly within the category of Western exceptionalism or Christian apologetics. And there's a well-known argument for the division between science and religion called non-overlapping magisteria by Stephen Jay Gould, which argues that science deals with the material and the, the real world and religion is more to do with the spiritual realities and metaphors and 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 doesn't encroach on that and there's uh, there's a point where jordan peterson essentially makes the exact same argument. and some of it's also philosophical confusion in my estimation it's like once the um, the rationalists and the empiricists got going um you know we started to formulate a very powerful doctrine of the objective world and that that doctrine appeared to stand in opposition to the doctrine that was put forth by the Christian church, the mythological doctrine, let's say, 
if you assume that what the mythological doctrine was, was a variant of that kind of empirical truth, which it wasn't. Yeah, I, I mentioned that to point out that it's carving out this realm for religion where it's metaphorical and mythological and it, it doesn't encroach on the empirical sciences and those are different domains. But then, as we see later, as we've seen, you know, with the resurrection discussion, there is empirical claims and there, there are encroachments on scientific topics and debates that impact actual like creationism and intelligent design are the, the clearest examples but there's plenty of others and it, it it simply isn't the case that the, the majority of the world treat all their religious ideas as metaphorical mythological yeah. beliefs and, and look and, and, f and furthermore they, jordan peterson doesn't either because earlier on he he, he talked about how that theological level had to be influencing evolution. So we have to take that into account. You can't ignore that. The materialists can't, you know, you can't be a materialist and a, and a evolutionary biologist was his argument. And yeah, as you say, pretty much all of the religions did make or do make strong materialist claims about literally creating the creation of man, for instance, mankind or humankind, I should say, you know, and that's, that's only made, it was only made kind of abstracted once the evidence against that just mounted up and it became an untenable uh, position for an educated person to have. So JBP seems to be an apologist, as you say, because he's, he's working hard to, he'll sometimes rely on that non-overlapping magisteria idea to, to, to carve out the, this distinct realm for, for theology, but he'll sometimes rely on that levels of reality idea where he puts theology down there at, at, at the most fundamental level of reality and the material stuff being kind of uh, ephemera that, that, that sits on top of that. Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess we've, We've banged the drum of his his contradictions and his Christian centric obsession. I might put it, or you, if you want to be nicer, you could say deep fascination. Deep fascination. Yeah, deep his deep fascination with Christianity. We've we've banged that drum hard enough. So maybe for the last point, so we don't end up with like a four hour podcast, it's worth turning to some of the more grounded issues and and some of the stuff that probably has made him a more controversial figure which only really gets touched on the at the end of this interview and this is his connections uh, or his ideas being taken up or co-opted by the far right or alt-right communities and the issues that he has with the left and the far left so let's get started by, I'll play a clip with him talking about the left and, and what the issue is with them. Um, I don't believe that what I've been discussing has been co-opted to any significant degree. I think that what has happened is that at this time and place, for some reason, it isn't the people on the left who are particularly open to the message, but that's because I think that they're far more gripped by the totalitarian spirit than people aligned along the rest of the spectrum. Right. So that's him pushing back on the suggestion, you know, that his message has been co-opted and he thinks that's been exaggerated by various commentators. But you can also hear there that he's basically saying for him that in the modern era, the totalitarians that he sees around him, which are concerning, are the 
the left and not it's not so evident that it's a problem on the other ends mm. of the spectrum yeah yeah so it's pretty hard to say look at a um a left political leader like joe biden and have any serious concerns about totalitarianism isn't it yeah i i think this is a a perennial issue that there's the concern about the far left woke vanguard and their their influence but a lot of it comes down to them being presented as the secret powers behind the moderates like clinton or or biden that they're they're just the figureheads for the actual powers who are the in american politics at least in in british politics you had corbyn who was well at this time probably was the leader of the labor party but but it, he didn't get elected and now labor again has a moderate leader in keir starmer so there's there's this notion that the totalitarian ideology of the the kind of woke left will will lead to a new maoist regime but but there's a there's a distinct lack of concern and this is part of what has got him in trouble with the existing far right regimes several of which are in actual power and and this is you know instantiated in his visit to orban in hungary who who is residing over an actual regime which is rolling back freedoms and you know curtailing the press closing down universities but he was able to go there and have you know a friendly chat with him about the the importance of christianity and western civilization yeah, so, so like if you wanted to concede for for the sake of argument that there was let's say some some concerning authoritarian tendencies on the extreme end of the left if one conceded that yeah, I think that's fine. Okay, so I think what you're saying is if one concedes that, sure, but a complete myopic obsession with just that and a complete obliviousness to to the very widespread and large-scale um, tendency towards authoritarianism on the right is not a sensible position. Yeah, and it, it leads people to question essentially where Peterson characterizes himself as non-political. It doesn't come across like that whenever you're kind of downplaying the extremism that exists on the right and and elevating that which exists on the left. That comes across as partisan politics. And this is a clip of him talking about why he sees the left as the greater issue in, in the modern world. The campuses have not been infiltrated by right-wing radicals. Not, not at all. Right. Not in the least. The campuses. Yeah. Well, the thing, the problem with that is that that's where the, the campuses, the humanities, let, let's lay it out again. Theology at the bottom, philosophy after that. Well, that's where the humanities are. The humanities are nearest to the foundation of our culture. And they're completely dominated by radical leftists, postmodern neo-Marxists. It's not, and that's, that's not my opinion. That's well documented. Right. Like there aren't even conservatives in those domains, let alone right wingers. I mean, that shows kind of following in the footstep of James Lindsay last week that his concern is really with the influence of the left and the radical left on education, and that he sees, you know, postmodern neo-Marxist philosophy as infecting 
society from from academia outwards and from culture outwards and and that that is what justifies his unrelenting focus on that topic and uh what what, yeah. what do you think? Well, I, th- I think there's a sense in which he's right and a sense in which he's wrong. So I guess the sense in which he's right is if when you look at surveys of academics, then yes, we, we are generally strongly um, on the progressive side of politics. That's true. So it's fair to say that left-wing ideas have a command in the academy that right-wing ideas don't. And okay, so I'm, again, I'm trying to make concessions. So the, the other the other thing that's fair to say is that yeah, that political slant is evident in many ideas that come out of academia and and are influential in society. So yeah, you know, the the, the people who go to university and get degrees, especially fancy universities, are the people who end up running companies and being in managerial, administrative, and political positions, and so on. So that's that's the sense, I guess, in which he's right. I guess the sense in which he's wrong is that that's not a reason to completely ignore, you know, the society and politics is bigger than than just the academy. And it's true that the, the right-wing populists tend to have the greatest amount of popularity with people who don't go to university or don't, don't have the highest levels of education. That doesn't make them any less concerning. And don't you think there's this element about this, which is people are complaining about the left-wing elitists in academia and their ironclad grip over society and how we need to counteract their harmful ideologies being spread. But it all it all rests on the notion that it's it's these quite academic ideas and the way that they're instantiated in activist movements, which are the most important thing in the modern world and in politics. And it strikes me as a thing that conservative academics or in, or just intellectuals would inevitably find more intuitively appealing that it's about these philosophies and ideas and debating them. And it's not just about political rhetoric and e- emotional appeals or the rise of like xenophobia or these kind of things. It is more about these quite yeah. rarefied yeah. philosophical approaches and that, and that's what we need to talk about focus understand and and those are the the big threats in the modern yeah. world yeah yeah no i agree with you i think when you're a sort of an armchair um opinionator and uh as someone who reads and writes for for a living or like jordan peterson you work in a university then the stuff you see is the kind of more rarefied stuff but the stuff that's on tv and the stuff that's actually relevant to most people is not the same stuff. So you get like the oppressors. <laughs> exactly. Like it's not it's not popular culture. Um, you know, yes, it does feed in, but even then the degree to which it's actually causal is debatable. You know, it's there might be some sort of ready-made buzzwords that apply, but it I am not sure that the uh, arrow of causality is 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 completely in that one direction. No, and I, I think we, it's important to remember that this interview is taking place in the context of the first year of uh, Trump's presidency. And uh, Boris Johnson is, I think at this time, the, the leader of, if not, it's Theresa May. But, um, and Brexit has been, uh, you know, in the wheels are moving. So this is not an era in which the 
the left are politically dominating the no, landscape. That's right, because people who don't have PhDs get to vote too. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah, and you know the um, the other the, the other thing where I think he's wrong is that he we've talked about this before, but he like a lot of these figures, they characterize academia as total and the social sciences as totally in the grip of cultural Marxists or whoever. And, you know, we don't need to labor this point, but it's just not, you know, <laughs> it's not, you know, psychologists are, are um, a social scientist and psychology is not, is not like that. It really isn't. Yeah. The, there's a very weird comment he makes round about the end where he says something like conservatives can be labeled right wing and, and he basically suggests that that's invalid. There's not even any conservatives. I mean, maybe you can call conservatives right wing. I think you got to, you know, you're pushing your luck when you do that. I was just listening to it going, well, who, who is right wing if conservatives aren't? So like there, there seems to be at least some confusion about the relative proportions <laughs> of people and, and the political spectrum. Because like, I, I think conservatives are right wing. <laughs> like that's a fairly uncontroversial <laughs> thing yeah. to say. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. All right. Well, so we're probably like on the eighth <laughs> bar now. <laughs> so we, maybe we, we should bring it to a close with mm. our concluding thoughts. So since I enjoy putting you on the spot and forcing you to, to do this first. So Matt, how, how would you summarize all of this and all of the preceding discussion in a pithy short I've told you before, sentences? I hate these takeaways. <laughs> Um, my instinct is to say I'm a lot. Okay. So yeah, look, we've, we've covered all of this, so I'm not going to reiterate it, but this is largely about a mystical Christian view of the world. He's, he's pretty explicit about that. He makes a lot of specific arguments. And as we covered, when you actually look at the argumentation that he provides, it's extremely hand wavy. And the connections he makes between ideas are very tenuous, which is is fine if you're not looking for that kind of argument. But yeah, I think I think we just need to be aware that he's not actually providing evidence or a logical justification for what he's saying. He's stringing together uh, a series of associations to paint a, a a kind of poem, a narrative of of life and the world, which is which he sees as meaningful. And, you know, I think that's a large part of the appeal. I think people seem to feel in deficit of meaning and they really appreciate the kind of things that JBP offers, which is the same things that religion and and New Age gurus offer, which is um, that sense of wonder, that sense of being in touch with the ineffable and the sense that the the mundane events in in one's life, like cleaning one's room, is connected to some sense of higher purpose. So I, I appreciate the reasons for the appeal. And indeed, in JBP's interest in this stuff himself, he strikes me as someone who is very much, you know, he's genuinely consumed with these issues and is, um, you know, talking to himself as much as to anyone else. So what else to say? I, I don't like this kind of thing, partly because I'm an atheist, so it doesn't, it's not going to work for me. <laughs> um, also partly because I have to read a lot of student essays and when people string together bad arguments, not to say they're wrong, just if they're not 
tightly argued, then my instinct is to get out the red pen and, and, and correct them. So it doesn't work for me on multiple levels. And I think that's, that's all I can think of to say right now. How about you, Chris? Uh, well, so thinking of Jordan Peterson as a guru, the impression that I get is that a large part of his appeal is the willingness to build these grand narratives that, that range across different disciplines and reference, you know, classical literature and mythology and biblical stories and and a whole bunch of things and pull them together into this narrative. And I think maybe I differ a little bit from you in that I think he does have arguments for the linkages that he's, he's fleshed out in quite a lot of detail in some of his, his other content and, and even to some extent here. But I, I, I agree with you that a lot of it comes down to hand wavy associations and things that fall apart the more that you dig into them. But in the same way as people like Jared Diamond, you know, Guns, Germs and Steel, or or even Richard Dawkins, people offering these grand sweeping messages that help you understand society and help you understand yourself have a lot of appeal. And his characteristic as the guru who knows has a mastery of so many topics and is also emotionally available to his followers and cares deeply about them. It's all it's all classical guru stuff. And the fact that it's tied up with a, a Christian and psychological bow just leads to it having a intrinsic appeal, which I don't find it that surprising that he was able to become so popular. And and listening to his 12 rules for life, if you let it all wash over you and you don't think too hard about it, it's kind of an enjoyable thing. So so yeah, I, I, I guess my point is just that I see him as an almost prototypical guru and one who fits neatly into this modern age by, you know, providing online lectures, getting involved with culture war commentary on Twitter and Maybe a point to end on is that it looks like his tale will be quite a tragic one because he ended up addicted to painkillers in part because of the fame and the schedule, seems likely. And then in efforts to get off those, seems to have suffered brain damage as part of an induced coma and may never return to the public stage. So whether you see that as a good or a bad thing depends on your view on the man, but it's certainly the case that there's a tragic arc to his story where there's a meteoric rise, uh, like a controversy-fueled period where he's at his peak, and then a dramatic and sudden collapse. So, so maybe he'll be a figure that people are still talking about in 10 or 20 years, or he'll just be a minor cultural footnote. I, I can't mm. predict. Yeah, look, I... I completely agree with you about Jordan Peterson being the prototypical guru that we're interested in. And it's surprising that he's not recognized as a new age meaning giver in the same mold as Deepak Chopra, because it is so similar in terms of the nature of the appeal and the style of presentation. Um, It's interesting that it's simply because he's a, um, a Christian, as opposed to being into 
some Eastern religion of some kind, it seems that people don't think that he could possibly be a new age guru in that case. But And the other interesting thing about him is that he does combine the mysticism with you know a smattering of scientific evidence as well, although somewhat haphazardly. Although even that is not entirely remarkable for a new age guru. Of course, we've got quantum consciousness and ideas like that that came out of um, um, your, your more traditional new age gurus. They, they don't do it as well as Jordan Peterson, but there's certainly um, a, a long tradition of wanting to incorporate the legitimacy of science into into their worldview so as i said at the beginning he's the big kahuna he is the man he is just a wonderful example of what we're interested in and um i i I feel pretty sanguine i suppose about jordan peterson i feel sympathetic because it does look like his arc has ended i think that the people who or at least the vast majority of people who get something from jordan peterson i think it's probably almost entirely benign um, in that they really are just looking for a a bit of help in terms of their lives and just looking for a bit of meaning. Um, I think they could get that stuff from from other sources or they can get it from JBP. In terms of the political stuff, I could completely understand why more progressive people would have a big problem with Jordan Peterson because I think he, like a lot of the IDW figures, have that myopic obsession with the excesses of the left and completely um, give a pass to anything right of centre. So I think that's pretty much it. All right. Yeah, agreed. So we're always good at this, but the last couple of things that we should mention is we have a Twitter account, which is Guru's Pod. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I... Yeah, it is. And then we have an email account, which is decodingthegurus at gmail.com. So you can send back any feedback there or or tweet at us on Twitter where I'm at C underscore Kavanaugh. And Matt Arthur is... Arthur C. You, you can also leave us a five-star review on um, the iTunes store. Um, oh, yeah. There's no other... Don't, don't try to give us a four-star review or a three-star review. It'll actually break break your browser. So... Just um, only yeah. These things I actually I didn't realize. You know, podcasts are always asking for those, but I didn't realize they're actually like gold dust to get, <laughs> to get people to write the reviews. Apparently, uh, you know, it's a very rare thing. So yeah, do that. And even if you want to write something mean, that's that's okay. That's that's all no. right. We can take no, it. Chris. No, <laughs> <laughs> is that the wrong? <laughs> well, yeah. All right. We don't. We don't. Next week, do we know who we're dealing with? Uh, we don't know yet, but we will announce it very soon. Um, so, yeah, this was fun. I think this is my favorite episode ever. Thanks, Chris. All right. Same to you. Bye-bye. See ya. <laughs> <laughs>